we're an online ecosystem, but it's really about the people. And we like to go old school. We like to go to the ground and get solar installed on these sites. Hello and welcome to the Solar Maverick podcast, where solar meets entrepreneurship and experience. I'm your host, Benoit Thangen, so let's get into it. Hi, this is Benoit, your host of the Solar Maverick podcast. I'm excited to have my guest, Dan French. He's the founder and CEO of Brownfield Listing. Brownfield Listing is a property marketplace and project marketplace for real estate with reuse challenges. Dan is a trained attorney and transaction expert with domestic and international expertise. His U.S. practice has focused on real estate transactions, environmental risk transactions, and redevelopment. Long a student of the deal, his watchword is due diligence, which helps explain why Dan has become trusted to lead transaction support initiatives for some of the largest companies in the world. And I'm excited to have Dan on the podcast. We met at an event that he organized in Virginia. He had me as a featured speaker to talk about financing. And when you hear Dan on the podcast, you'll see his passion for about redevelopment, specifically Brownfield redevelopment. Welcome to the podcast, Dan. Thank you for your time today. Thanks, Benoit. I'm happy to be on the Solar Maverick podcast. And thanks for that warm introduction as well. Can you talk more about Brownfield listings? And I obviously gave a very high level overview of it. And obviously, our podcast is about solar and entrepreneurship. It would be great to talk about as well how you've gotten involved with solar with Brownfield listing. Yeah, so Brownfield Listings, as you said, is a property marketplace and a project workspace or platform. We think of it as a redevelopment ecosystem. And in our ecosystem, which has over 25,000 members now, you can find every species of redevelopment professional. It really runs the gamut. These real estate projects can involve so many different disciplines when we're talking about environmental contamination or different types of historic preservation, all these funky, exotic projects. We fold under our umbrella, if you will, and you can find them all, all those kinds of people on our site, very interesting projects, well-trained professionals doing lots of different things. Solar is one of our biggest segments. We have a tag or a species in our taxonomy. It's actually called the taxonomy. You can find it on our website called Brightfield. So you can tag your site as a Brightfield, which is a cue to the market that you're interested in pursuing solar development or redevelopment on our site. You can be a greenfield. There's a lot of solar going on greenfields like out west on desert land and so on. You can find industrial parks and commercial parks on our website. Those are technically green fields. But we have gray fields. It's a rainbow of opportunities on the property side and the professional side. We're this strange kind of ecosystem that brings everybody together. Yeah, definitely. And it's not only the ecosystem that you have on your website. You organize a lot of different events. I mentioned the event that you did in Richmond, Virginia with Brownfield Listings. What I loved about the event is that solar developers could meet landowners who have redevelopment opportunities. And it's great to kind of have like, I don't know what you called it, but like a round robin where they got to meet you. And then the different tracks that you had, one for landowners to get comfortable with solar, but also as well, solar developers. And then, you know, you obviously had a lot of people from the Virginia DOE. You also had people who are involved in redevelopment. So it's amazing. I was really impressed with that event. 
that you organized. And I think it's a great sort of platform that you've created. Thanks. Yeah. You know, we're an online ecosystem, but it's really about the people. And we like to go old school. We like to go to the ground. Since we founded, we launched, we had our soft launch in 2015. And since then, we've been supporting conferences. The big EPA Brownfield Conference was in Chicago that year, where we are based, Brownfield's 2015. And we supported that conference, saw the importance of getting real people together. And that's what we do in our Brightfield series, get the right people in the same room at the same time of similar motivation. And we think about it like the critical path. What do we need to go from zero to 100 and get solar installed on these sites? And that takes folks in the public sector who have approvals or programs that are relevant in such a project, incentives, even different states, the laboratory of the states are experimenting with all kinds of ways to promote this space. And Virginia is one of those states. Virginia DEQ is actually the host for Brightfields, Virginia, where we met. Yeah, two great tracks. As this ecosystem, we have an educational kind of service that we provide the market, and we're definitely doing that on the ground as well. So we built a great educational program with speakers, public and private sector folks along the two tracks, kind of tilted towards our different segments of the audience. So we had the kind of solar developer and vendor track, and then the landowner and community track because of slightly different things that are more or less relevant to those folks. And our idea is to coach them up and then uh, throw them in the solar market mixer is the it, <laughs> where we sit the landowners and communities down at tables and everybody rotates every six or seven or eight minutes. It kind of depends on who's there and, and what the formula is that day. It's a little bit organic. Um, and it goes quick, but it's a great way to read the market, particularly if you're a landowner for community. You're talking to a lot of folks, random calls in the night and, and messages, sitting down, getting in front of a lot of folks, getting their cards, shaking their hands, seeing that they're a real person gives you a different feel and value as you're making progress on your solar project. Yeah, definitely. I think the market mixer is a great idea. I mean, as a speaker of the event and then meeting with the different landowners, you were really able to build a relationship with them. And it's a lot easier to follow up with them once they've met you. And they're a lot more responsive than say, if it was a cold sort of call or, or you know, they received some sort of letter, which is great. Yeah, absolutely. In this age where everything's online and it's a million emails a day, you're playing phone tag with people, actually sitting down and having seven minutes makes a big difference. And I appreciate you, Dan, having me part of a webinar that we did before Brightfield with the Virginia Department of Environmental Quality. And it was about basically listing brownfields, listing on powering up brightfields in your community. That was an event to get people excited about the Brightfields event that you had in Virginia. And I talked specifically about the Virginia solar market. It's interesting. You obviously have your JD, your LLM. You worked as an attorney for BP, which is obviously a very big energy company. What made you go into entrepreneurship? This podcast is about entrepreneurship as well. It would be interested to kind of understand like your story and your pathway to getting there and starting yeah. your company. Yeah. Sure. Couldn't get enough college after law school, three years of law school, <laughs> <after the> master's. <laughs> but I wanted to move to Europe. I was very interested in globalization at that time and always wanted to be involved in transactions and deals, particularly like mergers and acquisitions, corporate law. And so I took off to Rotterdam, Erasmus University, and got a master's of law in corporate law. It was an English-speaking program, thank goodness. <laughs> Dutch are great people. And had an incredible year there and worked around, did a couple odd jobs, worked for a firm there, not to detail for a little while, came back to work for British Petroleum 
And it was there where I had the aha moment kind of at the end after the real estate crash. It got hard to sell real estate. I was in the divestment group doing a lot of due diligence, putting a lot of the deal packets together, really getting my fingernails dirty, going through old boxes, like real due diligence and understanding these more sophisticated transactions. It was just really hard at BP. We spent a lot of money on sell-side due diligence, and it's usually the buyers in the United States who, who pay for due diligence. But we had to understand, characterize these sites to try to handle the risk. And that's the extra component above and beyond your more traditional, standard, cookie-cutter, greenfield real estate transaction is this environmental risk, which you really can't get away from. It goes backwards in time. It goes through the title. It can sometimes be cured in bankruptcy at the state level, but the feds can always come after you. So environmental liability, like once you've polluted, it's something that you just have to deal with. And so that gives a lot of shape to the deal flow in this space. So back to the aha moment at BP, we just graduated to more and more sophisticated strategies and spent more and more money. We went through several national brokers. And so one day we had built up to this fancy auction and in a big conference room, my boss is there, my boss's boss, a lot of suits and the auction started and it just didn't go very well. We had built up, we had put out these fancy marketing brochures waiting for all these bids to come on and they just didn't. People just weren't very interested in the sites that we had. It was disappointing And it occurred to me, like, if you're not in the oil business and you can't pay for this, how do you sell your brownfields? And that's when it dawned on me that a lot of people aren't, particularly in the public sector. I've always been on the private side, but the public sector has a huge problem with this. There's not a lot of money. There's not a lot of expertise. You really need a hero at the local level to take these on. There's some EPA grants that you can get to start out with some environmental testing. But it's a very, very dysfunctional space. It has a lot of funky segments that we kind of started out talking about. That's what our taxonomy is is really getting at. Every day we're trying to put these sites into places where the market can work on them. There are more solutions than ever, but it's a distorted market. And we're built from the ground up to try to promote more robust and healthier kind of function for all market participants, wherever they are, on the buy side, the sell side, and anywhere in between. Those are great points. And with the complexity of it, I mean, having this sort of marketplace with all the different participants is huge. I think it would be helpful if you could define what a brownfield is, because I feel like maybe not everyone who's listening might know what that is. So I think that might be really helpful. Yeah, skip that part. So brownfield is a real estate parcel that may or may not be contaminated. So it's land that's been previously developed basically. We're not quite sure what was there before. Sometimes you know for sure, but sometimes you don't. It may have been a factory a hundred years ago, like on the East Coast. Some of these sites have centuries-long development histories. You can always find something when you dig. So that's what a brownfield is, but really it's just threshold that you have to pass through. Because if you're selling commercial real estate or industrial property, you need to undertake environmental investigation before you buy it, or you may step into the chain of liability. So if you buy a brownfield and do not do your environmental homework, then you may be partly liable, even if you didn't actually do the pollution yourself. Once you're in the chain of title, you may be responsible for cleanup. So that's how the law is set up. And that's why we have this environmental due diligence regime. 
There's something called an environmental site assessment, phase one and phase two environmental site assessment. And that's kind of the currency of the space. Um, you got to get one of those to protect what I already defined, but it, the technical term is a bona fide purchaser protection. So if you go in and do your test and you know it's contaminated and you can prove that to the government, then you won't be, they will not pursue you and hold you uh, liable. And as an innocent owner or community, you can apply for these EPA Brownfield grants. I encourage everyone, actually, if you're interested in brownfields and redevelopment, that's really what we're talking about. Brownfields are real estate redevelopment. And the big brownfield show, I mentioned brownfields 2015 when we had our big launch. But this December in Los Angeles is brownfields 2019 at the convention center there downtown. And it's four days of awesome redevelopment programming. There's people talking solar and opportunity zones and every nook and cranny from basic to the most sophisticated strategies, incredible technologies on display there. There's a big exhibit hall, the people running the EPA Brownfield program. You can find it all in Los Angeles in December. I'll be there. And it's a great way to enter the space and learn a lot more about it, which more people are doing because the market is moving that way for lots of different reasons. In big communities and small, everybody's kind of starting to focus on redevelopment, especially now since opportunity zones have passed into law. And I think, you know, you were before the podcast, you were asking me a little bit about opportunity zones. Yeah, definitely. So that was a great definition of brownfields. Can you talk about like opportunity zones and then how brownfields are connected with opportunity zones? That would be helpful. Yeah, so opportunity zones are almost 8,800 zones that they were just lines on the map, basically, that the states and the governors uh, designated in their own state and was certified by the IRS. And if you invest inside these opportunity zones into real estate or into a business, business expansion, then you can defer your capital gains. So there's very few ways to not pay taxes in our tax system. In real estate, the 1031 exchange is one way, Mm -hmm. but opportunity zones provide a new way to defer your capital gains if you invest in opportunity zone and can comply with a certain set of regulations. It's pretty simple, big picture, but there is a lot of compliance to it and questions. It's a new thing. And the IRS is well, Treasury is rolling out a series of regulations and they're There's probably a few more regulations left to go, but it's pretty exciting because let's say the way it would work is, let's say you have big capital gains and some stock that you had, you sell that stock, and instead of paying taxes on that sale, on that transaction as you would, if you invest, I think it's within 30 days or within a certain period of time into a qualified opportunity zone fund, then within a certain period of time deploys that capital into a qualified opportunity zone investment inside an opportunity zone then you can defer your taxes for a very, very long time and let your money grow. It's a new tax regime. It's uh, focused on these you know, chronically underinvested communities, although there are places like downtown Portland, huge swaths of Portland, which aren't necessarily distressed, are in the opportunity zones. The states had some flexibility on exactly where it was, but it brought a lot of attention to these areas and into these redevelopment opportunities because You can't really do investment in opportunity zones without doing real estate redevelopment because they're all brownfields and they're all legacy sites. They're all sites almost that have been previously developed. There's very, very few green fields left anywhere in urban America, even in small communities. Definitely. I think it's a huge opportunity, opportunity zones. And we're getting questions all the time from real estate developers who are developing projects in opportunity zones to add solar as well. And I think 
as well as part of the legislation for opportunity zones is for any capital gains that was put into a project in an opportunity zone for 10 years, then you don't have to pay a capital gains tax on that. So it's extremely lucrative. And as you said, which was a great point, it's probably one of the best ways of minimizing your tax burden that's out there other than obviously the like-kind exchange, which you mentioned before. What was really interesting actually in the interview mentioned taxonomy within brownfield listings. Can you talk more about what that means actually when you say taxonomy within the brownfield listings? Yeah, so we've given a tag for each species on our project and property side. As a vendor or professional, you can tag your profile for these things too, but they're things like greenfield and brownfield and grayfield, but also things like transit-oriented development or tax incentive or historic preservation or brightfield, because each of these species kind of evolves in its own way. They lend themselves to different types of professionals. They lend themselves to different types of instruments. We are a self-listing service. The platform is built to enable our users. And if they have the right language to identify themselves, then the market can work better. That was the basic idea behind Brownfield Listings. I started out the podcast with a very deep, through my eyes, aha moment. But basically, there needed to be a place that you could be in your pajamas at midnight and sell <laughs> as a brownfield. Like it was really hard. How do we get our environmental liabilities out there in a way that the market can understand? You get in front of a lot of people at once. There was no market. There was no simple place to list in, in five minutes. And that's what the kernel of brownfield listings was. And then from that, we grew into this ecosystem. It's like, wow, each of these biomes is kind of operating independently. And so we very quickly graduated into a Brightfield series of events, in-person, on-the-ground events to, to really help the market bring people together. So we've done many of those now. The next one, I think, is going to be in early February in Minnesota, where we've never been. So stay tuned for announcements about upcoming events in our Brightfield series. But we also have an Opportunity Zone series. The best event we've ever done based on feedback was our new Opportunity Zone Boot Camp and Pitch Competition here in Chicago at the University of Illinois at Chicago. A couple months ago, it was incredible. We had an awesome educational program. Again, like in our Brightfield series, we're trying to coach them up and teach them up, get the best practices, resources, and points of contact out, out there. But then we wrapped with a pitch competition. We had prizes and people had these amazing projects. The finalists did, and they pitched their hearts out for investment. We had some investors in the room. And we're doing that again, actually, in Newark, New Jersey at NJIT on October 17th. We run in the same format. There's going to be a great educational program in the morning and through mid-afternoon, pitch competition in the early evening, and then reception in the evening where we'll announce the winners. And it's a full day of opportunity. It kind of has three different parts. The pitch competition is very exciting, but come for breakfast and learn everything there is to know about Opportunity Zones with us in Newark on, on uh, October 17th. Yeah, I think that's a huge opportunity, that event that you're organizing. So definitely appreciate you letting us know. I actually am developing a project with the New York Housing Authority. That part of it is an opportunity zone. Not all the, it's 38 different buildings in Manhattan and Brooklyn, but some of them are in opportunity zone. So it'll be interesting to learn more about your event that you're having actually in the near future. What date is it again? It's October 17th. 
at NJIT, which is downtown. It's like less than 10 minutes from the airport. So really easy to get to from Newark, the big international airport there. Yeah. And we'll obviously have notes on the podcast about that event that's coming up in Newark and obviously the big event that yours will having in Los Angeles. We talked about a little bit how you started your company. This podcast is also not just about solar, but entrepreneurship. But what suggestions do you have for someone who wants to start their own business? For us, it was really about understanding our market. We tried to dive into this very sophisticated problem and solve a lot of dysfunction. We knew it was there, but it took us a while to find like market fit. That's really important. We knew there was a lot of value in this space. Things were very broken. Things were very siloed. We kind of had an idea of an ecosystem. We were on the way to building what BL became, but our focus very early on was trying to figure out what we had gotten ourselves into, really. But we knew that. So you have to have a plan for that. Being focused from day one on your customers, your clients, how you're delivering value and how you're finding market fit. Like that's super, super important. You can become great things, but you have to start taking small steps or you're not going to make it. You're not going to survive. Some great advice that I heard, and I, I don't know who said this originally, but if you don't focus on the money, you're in big trouble. The, the quote is, if you get everything right, but the money part, you're fucked. Excuse my language. And it's so true. Businesses are in it to make money. Unless you're like your Facebook, you have a different plan. Sometimes you can intentionally go for long periods to try to become something else. And we kind of experienced that in our own way. But staying true to market fit and revenue and your customers, your clients delivering value, that's a pretty good North Star. Yeah, definitely. These are all great suggestions. And it's amazing to me. I feel like the US is going under a redevelopment renaissance when it comes to bright fields. Can you talk about that? We were talking about this before the podcast, even though the potentially the economy might be slowing down. You guys are extremely busy because you're adding a value that's not in the marketplace today. You basically have created a marketplace for brown fields and it's open to obviously different participants. And it would be great if you could talk more about that. Yeah, I mean, it is a renaissance, solar and beyond. I was at BP when oil ran to $150 a barrel. We were talking about resource wars and a century of scarcity. Drill, baby, drill. Oil independence, energy independence had been a dream. Manufacturing had been fleeing. But in the time since then, the decade since 2008, when oil peaked out, we've, uh, we've more than doubled oil production. We brought incredible amounts of natural gas online. Solar prices have fell by 80%. Wind prices keep getting cheaper. Batteries are scaling up and we're shifting to abundance. So that's what's helped drive this incredible economic expansion that we've seen. Yeah, due for a recession, the world is maybe weaker than North America. These things are inevitable, but the structural forces that have driven this recovery will continue. They have decades to play out. We've got millions of solar panels left to install. There's landfills. There's hundreds of thousands of landfills in the United States that are just going to sit there and do nothing until somebody puts solar panels on them. And a lot of other things. Manufacturing is back. We've got to build a drone army. Who's going to do that, right? <laughs> We've got driverless cars, shifting to a fleet system. We've got flying taxis. There's a lot of things in the pipeline, even if nobody else invents anything for a while. It's all about the built environment. So we're going to see a lot of the technologies start to come to the ground. Even our challenges will require real estate responses like climate change. All of these things are changing business and changing the business of real estate. And we need to continue to adapt and evolve and respond to that, both as individual businesses, but also as communities and as a country, because it's starting to cost a lot of money. 
But also on the positive side, we see the gains that we can make. There's a great study. You can find this blog on our website, brownfoodlistings.com. In the Journal of American Medicine, they highlighted a study. They cleaned up vacant lots in Philadelphia. They did nothing in the control group. They spent a thousand bucks to kind of clean up the trash and mow it in the A group. And in the B group, they spent 3000 bucks. And not only did they pick up the trash and mow it, but they planted a couple bushes and maybe a tree and did a little picket fence. So $3,000 a lot. And the impacts on mental health in the local area were absolutely tremendous. If it was a poor community, impoverished community below the poverty line, the impact on mental health was 68%. People just started to feel better just with some green grass and a little faux picket fence. We have a mental health crisis in this country and we can solve it by upgrading our built environment. Yeah, definitely. That's huge. And kind of continuing a point which you kind of mentioned, can you talk more specifically about why solar is ideal for brownfields and landfills or for redevelopment? Yeah, well, first, because I mentioned it already, a lot of these sites aren't going to do anything else. (laughs) Yes, that's correct. (laughs) Um, Especially landfills. There are places where landfills can be used for other things. We have a huge housing crisis. There's incredible housing pressure in some markets. And it just makes sense. The ground, the dirt is worth enough to put a super cap and put your houses on top. That can be done. But in a lot of places, it's just not feasible or practical. The market's not there for it. And so those landfills are just going to sit there. And there's really nothing that can be done. But solar, solar fits on top. It's not going to hurt anybody or get hurt. And actually, landfills are pretty safe. I mean, you're not going to become sick walking around on these capped landfills. There's a big cap underneath and then lots of dirt. Some of these solar managers, solar operators, they're bringing in sheep and uh, other grazers. That's great. Agricultural guys are getting involved. And so you can actually stack many different chains of value onto these sites that are dormant or doing nothing, seen as drags, right? In their community, their eyesores, places to avoid. But actually I've seen apiaries on these solar fields, these bright fields. We've got a session that we like to repeat in our bright field series, bright fields for bees and butterflies. Pollinators are in trouble. These sites that are eyesores and contaminated underground can still be oases for some of our most critical species above ground while they're harvesting electrons, putting more renewable juice on the grid or to local use. Definitely. That's a great answer. That's a renaissance. (laughs) That's the renaissance. (laughs) Well, this is the part of the podcast that you could ask me two questions. I know I've been asking you a lot of questions Do you have any questions for me? Yeah, talk about your kind of career path. How did you, from where you started, like chart your course to entrepreneurship? Sure. So it's been an amazing journey. Um, And there's been ups and downs, obviously, with anything. What actually got me interested in starting my own business is both my parents had their own businesses, which I worked at since I was very young, like 12 to 13 years old. And pretty much my dad's business, I could at certain times, manage it. And then I worked in corporate for a while, which sounds like you did as well. I worked for a company called Deloitte & Touche and their energy group. Then I went to a private equity fund where I analyzed investments in renewable energy projects, not solar, landfill gas, biomass, hydro. And I thought 10 years ago that solar was going to be the next big thing. The prices were going to decrease exponentially and the technology was going to get a lot better. A lot of people thought that wasn't going to happen based on what I was saying. And then I went to a solar installer 
where I did project finance called Vanguard Energy Partners. And I worked for Solar City Tesla. I helped start their Eshrec trading desk. If people don't know, Eshrec's a commodity, not a commodity, an incentive to incentivize development of renewables that states create. That's a tradable commodity. And then uh, seven years ago, actually in August, I decided to start my own company. We first started out in the consulting business, which we still do, where we broker these SREC transactions. We actually manage 12 megawatts worth of projects that we do the SREC management in. We also source financing for projects. We helped one of our clients source financing for $25 to $30 million worth of projects that we originated the relationship with the developer and helped with the due diligence. We're also developing our own projects, commercial, industrial, and utility scale. And obviously, Brownfields is part of our strategy, opportunity zones as well is part of the strategy. So that's kind of the long-winded answer to you on that. Yeah, awesome, man. Diverse course and a lot of things I'm sure you learned along the way. I know for me, like taking the law and then having corporate clients, and then I went on to like consult, and uh, there's no substitute for being inside and working with some of these different types of organizations to see how they each approach their business differently. Yeah, and that's been an amazing part for me because I work for a consulting firm, a private equity firm to solar developers and installers. I bring like a wide variety of experience. And then that's really helped with the consulting business. And we've purely focused on solar. We don't do other technologies, even though I have that experience. And it sounds like you have that same experience as well. And obviously, doing what you do, there's a lot of different aspects of it. And then you have to figure out how you could add value which with the marketplace and good old-fashioned meeting of people and, and creating and bringing the right people together. So that's yeah, exciting. Yeah, we have a lot of fun. Yeah, we get to do a lot of, do everything. It's great. And that's why I'm so constructive on the world right now. I mean, yes, the recession will come, as we said, inevitable. There's black swans out there. Hopefully we can avoid, avoid some kind of world war, but there's so much work to do. We're in all markets, all 50 states and US territories, big town, small town. There's more heroes trying to get things moving in their community than ever before. It's really great to see the residential, commercial, and industrial segments all popping at the same time. We've been waiting 40 years for that in this country. And now we've got all these new things coming into our world, this movement towards quality of place, the war of amenities. Everybody wants the grassy knolls and (laughs) and pedestrian-oriented development. POD is a tag that you can find in the brownfieldlistings.com taxonomy thinking about the pedestrian first. Sensitive receptors is a key term that we like to use. Often in the space, thinking about the infirmed, the disabled, the children, the moms with strollers. If you orient your development plan with them in mind, you can win over, you can develop better quality of place, number one, but also win over a lot of hearts and minds. So even in the Brightfield space, like I've seen communities that want the Brightfield hidden, but others where they want a path kind of around and through the solar development space. And if that's what the community wants, then all the better. It's a world of possibility out there. There's so many, the cost to remediate sites is coming down. We have bio remediation now. There's trees that are doing some environmental work out there for us. (laughs) And so it really is a renaissance. And I'm very, very positive on our ability to meet the challenges of the future. Yeah, the future is bright. Yes, as much as we build it. (laughs) 
<laughs> That's Dan's tagline, I feel like. So I wanted to say it. You before. got it in before I did, yeah. Yeah, definitely. It's okay. Everybody can use that. Because <laughs> the future's as bright as we build it. And uh, I didn't grow up thinking that way. I was a pessimist. Being at BP, when the world really started to go sideways and wondering how we're going to power the world, brought my life into clear resolve and really thinking we had too many people on the planet and Mad Max and all this. <laughs> yeah. And that's why I, I'm not an optimist by nature. This is my professional view, just looking at the world. We had one more carbon boom, and you might not be on board with all the oil that we brought online and we're exporting it now. And yes, we're still burning some coal, but it bought us time for Elon and Tesla and all these other guys to do their thing. And now we've got renewable technologies and the battery wars have broken out. And uh, old man Goodenough, John Goodenough, who invented the lithium ion battery, he's invented a solid state battery. And so has Fisker, they filed for a patent. If we get a battery breakthrough from here, we're on our way to some Jetsons. Definitely. And, uh, And that's a very, very bright future indeed. Yeah, that's game changing. And this has been an amazing interview. And what you're doing is having a great impact to our environment for the good. So it's amazing to hear your story of how you were a pessimist. I would have never known that since all my interactions. You have so much energy and passion and you're so excited about the positive change that we're seeing in the world. So that's amazing for me to see like or to hear about your mindset shift and then you taking that sort of passion with your company, Brownfield Listing, and making an impact to this world. So thank you. Yeah, absolutely. Geared towards the pessimist. I work so hard and we should lean in right now because we will be tested again. I don't know when it's going to be. There's going to be another big 2008 moment. If we don't get to the Jetsons, if we don't really hit that next plateau, then uh, maybe climate change or whatever it's going to be, we're not going to be ready for the next test. And then we could slip slide backwards. So here's just one stat. I love to throw this out. Sure. In the ice cores, we can measure metal production going all the way back to antiquity. Because when you smelt Heavy metals, not only does it make your brownfield more schmutzy, <laughs> it kicks effluents up into the higher atmosphere, and those are captured in the ice cores. And so we actually we have a pretty good read on global iron production, for example, even back to Roman times. And so what we know from the ice cores is that when Rome collapsed and the great Mediterranean economy collapsed, it took a thousand years for global iron production to recover. So it wasn't until the Industrial Revolution that the world was producing as much iron again. That's what the Dark Ages was. There's a lot of other stats. From landfills, from ancient landfills, we can determine how big bowls were, right? We can actually track the volume of the pottery that they were producing. Lots of ways to measure the old economies, thanks to brownfields. But we can't miss this opportunity, right? If we have this moment now, we have super abundance now, we have all these technologies, solutions that we need to implement at scale, then we need to do it now. Because if we're not ready when the next challenge comes, then Mad Max is always on the table. And why delay a renaissance? Like, there's, there's plenty of work to do and money to make and good to achieve in this world. And we can do it if we just lean in and, and make the most of this moment. That's a great way to end the podcast. If people want to learn more about Brownfield listings or to get in contact with someone at the company, what's the best way that they could do that? They can go to brownfieldlistings.com. They can also email us at info at brownfieldlistings.com. You can also call us at 312-988-0256. You can find all of our events on our website. You can find a lot of great blogs on our website. And you can use our website mostly for free. So basic listings are always for free. It will cost you nothing to get your property or project up. 
You can post a basic profile for free if you're a professional. So get out there, engage, and know that if we do work hard and lean in, the future is very bright. Yeah, definitely. Thank you, Dan. This was an amazing interview. Thank you, Benoit. I really appreciate it. I hope I see you either in Newark on October 17th or at our next Brightfield event. I'll definitely be in Newark. We're based in Jersey City, so we're right, like 10 minutes away, 15 minutes away. So I'll uh, definitely be there. And, be and thank you. And Brightfields. First thing in the morning. Yes. <laughs> I can't wait. I had such a great time in Virginia and Richmond. So I'm looking forward to this event as well. Awesome. Well, thanks again. Great podcast and keep up the great work, man. Keep putting the good word out there. More people engaging in a hopeful future, the better, the quicker it will come. So thanks for all the work you're doing and keep it up. Oh, anytime. Thank you, Dan. Thank you so much for listening. If this content is delivering value to you, please go to iTunes and Stitcher Radio and leave us a five-star review. That helps us build this community, and that's what we're all about right now, building this community as big as we can to deliver as much value as we can. 